I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. During the last ice age, glaciers in what is now modern-day New York State scraped deep gouges into the soil during their northward retreat, and this motion formed several lake beds, including the Finger Lakes. Though the region is much warmer than it once was in that glaciery ice age, it is still one of the world's cooler wine-growing climates and excels in cool climate grapes such as Riesling and Syrah. The Finger Lakes are deep, with Lake Seneca reaching a depth of 203 meters. Deep lakes such as these hold heat that is slowly given off during the winter. The lakes are not prone to freezing, and ultimately, the large body of water helps manage more consistent temperatures in the surrounding vineyards. Slate slopes encourage air to move, which helps in preventing frosts. The Finger Lakes wine region is one of the older wine regions in the United States, with grapes dating to at least 1829, when a reverend planted a vineyard in his garden. Within 30 years of this inaugural garden, commercial vineyards multiplied, and over the next 90 years, the Finger Lakes wine industry grew to boast the first bonded winery in the U.S., a thriving sparkling wine business, and the establishment of cooperage infrastructure and professional viticultural techniques. In the early 1900s, Finger Lake wines and California wines were popular choices for fancy dinners and political banquets. But all this momentum ground to a halt with prohibition. prohibition. Slowly, after the Great Depression and World War II, interest began to pick up in the wine business in the 1950s. And in the 1960s, an influx of hybrids from France caused a minor rejuvenation. Still, during all the hybrid excitement, a debate began brewing that pitted hybrids and indigenous varieties against vinifera varieties. Constantine Frank led the pro-vinifera camp and was very persuasive in encouraging locals to plant vinifera. The debate echoed all the way down the East Coast and still has repercussions in the mid and southeast where wineries tend to identify with either indigenous and hybrids or vinifera varieties. In Frank's day, the state laws didn't make it feasible for a small winery to operate. And so in the 60s and 70s, larger cash-heavy wineries dominated the market. And they supplemented with grapes from growers who couldn't bottle their own wine and still make a profit. That changed in 1976 with the New York Farm Winery Act that allowed small operations to sell directly to customers, and a new era of New York State wine came into being with small and medium-sized wineries popping up all over. More recently, the region has hung its hat on the Riesling variety, though reds are increasing in popularity. Curious to learn more? Keep listening for an insider's look into the Finger Lakes. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. 
Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an S dot com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Christopher Bates of FLX Winery and also Element Winery on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Fantastic. Thanks. Very nice to have you here. Pleasure to be here. Where'd you grow up? I uh, grew up in upstate New York, uh, up in Arkport, New York. Small little town, a little bit uh, further west from the Finger Lakes. And what were you into as a kid? Mostly cooking and eating. Yeah, um, you got into cooking early. Yeah, kind of didn't have much of a choice. Lived Why is out, that? I lived out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I mean, it's a tiny town, rural farming community. Um, how big was your school? About 500 kids, K through 12. So 500 total. Total. Big sports team? Huge. Uh, <laughs> all of us were on it. Um, so yeah, it was uh, classes of about 36 people and just tiny little agricultural community. And my mom was into into cooking. And so I just kind of grew up. It was something that we did on weekends. We'd read cookbooks and then cook all weekend and started, you know, I got into stuff really early and started liking good food and just kind of grew up with it. So... What were your parents like? Old hippies, mostly. Is that why they headed up there? uh, Pretty much, yeah. It was kind of a, I think it was a little retreat out. They found an old house in the country and thought it'd be easy and are still there working on it now. You had brothers or sisters? Nope, just me. So that was the family bonding time was the cooking. That was it. And where did that take you? Well, kind of went through, I mean, grew up cooking from the time I could reach the counter. Started working in restaurants when I was about uh, 14. You wanted to make Um, some uh, spending money? Uh, yeah, I wanted to buy a car and get beer money, basically. So, started uh, working at a restaurant, washing dishes, bussing tables, eventually waiting tables and cooking while I was in high school. Just kind of did that in addition to sports and those other fun things, but mostly was just focused on on work pretty early. And took um, when it came time to decide college stuff, I was kind of stuck trying to decide if I wanted to go to cooking school or real person school. And kind of went back and forth and found, um, sort of on an off chance, found Cornell had both options. So, went there. Was cooking kind of an athletic activity for you? Did you find it helped you use some of those skills that normally, you know, you'd do playing football or whatever? No. I just, <laughs> uh, no, I, uh, I more like just like the results. Yeah. Um, you like food. creating something. Um, and creativity and understanding, you know, I mean starting to I started baking bread when I was really little and just getting that like technique and understanding of feel and texture and all of those things it was kind of a creative outlet for me which I really liked started baking cakes and doing lots of like cake decorating and things like that kind of like what happens when we do this yeah exactly. like if we change the recipe a little bit what yep. happens on the other end that kind of stuff and I guess looking back, it was probably a little weird in upstate New York to be a little boy decorating cakes for art class. Yeah, but uh, you're also huge. So <laughs> the yeah, dude that like never, made fun of you, he's probably, I was never really a little boy. They never but, saw him again. <laughs> you know, like, uh, hey, Christopher, aren't you a girly man? Boom! No, <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah, so I, I didn't get too much hell for it, but yeah, no, just lots of fun artistic stuff with cakes and you know just learning food and cuisine and through it culture. I mean, I was always interested in other cultures and other parts of the world and travel and food has always been a way for me to do that. Cause you could experience German cuisine, French cuisine, yep. Italian cuisine. And exactly. Know. And getting to know other cultures, you know, sushi was something I just grew up loving and making, I started making when I was like six, eight or something. And 
it was just always a connection for me to be interested in what happens in other cultures and learning more about Japan and its culture and food cultures and around the world. So you get to Cornell, what happens? I kept working. A ton of work is really kind of what I did most of the time I was there was just running, um, working in the hotel at school and taking as many classes as I could as quickly as I could. You were a power user when it came to school. You wanted some credits done. Yeah, I took a lot. I think I graduated early. I did graduate early and it was, I took a ton of classes. So um, just really fast trying to get through it. I mean, a big part of it for me was just wanting to get out into the real work world and wanting to get to, to my career. So not really quite realizing that I was probably already doing that there, but just a ton of work and a ton of school stuff is at a pretty high pace. And then I started working around. I mean, I was doing summers out in Wyoming, working at a resort out there, just kind of ended up out there the first year and made some great friends and still pretty close with and kept going back out. So I was working out there and then just started moving around. I was, did a little bit of traveling. I'd gone and worked on a cruise ship for a minute and, and, uh, one of the European river cruises and learning. It was kind of the first time I was, well, second time I, I got to go through Germany and just traveling along the rivers and traveling along the Rhine, like looking up being like, holy crap. And that was one of the first places I fell in love with. And you did harvest there. I did, uh, in the Mosul. But yeah, I went back uh, in 2004 to do harvest in in Germany. It was the first place after I got out of school, I was kind of bouncing back and forth between the front and back of house and kept, I was always fascinated by the way that winemakers taste and really not just winemakers, but everybody in in different aspects of the industry and how sommeliers are always looking about, you know, what's, what's beautiful about this wine and retailers are always looking about like, what market does this hit? And then winemakers are always looking about what's wrong with this wine. And so I was always interested as I was doing winemakers dinners and tasting with more winemakers, how, you know, they'd pick up a glass and be like, oh, this has too much of this, too much VA and too much Breton. And I didn't like that, but I wanted to learn it. So I wanted to go make wine and got an opportunity to go to the Mosul and took it up. Was waiting for... Um, after I'd quit my job, I was working at the Green Zebra and put in notice to go do the Mosul and never heard back from again. So I started to get a little cold feet and a little nervous about it and ended up hooking up with a winery in Italy. So I went to do harvest in Italy. And then as soon as I booked that flight, Germany contacted me back. And so I went and did harvest uh, in 2004 in Italy. And as soon as we finished harvest there, hopped on a train and went to Germany, did a uh, Actually, two harvests there. I worked at uh, Tanish first, and then we were waiting at Batteryburg, and we waited really late. So I ended up basically doing the whole harvest at Tanish while we were waiting, and then did harvest at Batteryburg. And what did you pick up from that whole experience besides meeting your wife? Meeting the wife, lost about 80 pounds. Um, just for me, a little bit more sort of ingrained passion about wine and where it comes from understanding that it's not just textbook stuff, but it's also culture and society and all of those things that influence the way that wine comes about. I still think that the Mosul is the most beautiful place in the world. And for me, it's, it's almost something that I wish I could introduce people to as they were starting to get interested in wine. Cause I feel like once you see that, and once you taste those wines and see that place, you can't not be enthralled. You can't not understand. That was something I think I learned a lot. And of course, a little bit about winemaking and a lot about picking. A lot about picking. By that point, you're probably pretty into the wine thing. Yeah. And I've, I'd been into wine pretty early on. As soon as I got to college, I basically had transitioned. I'd started after I graduated high school. I got really interested in um, scotches and reading about single malts and learning about production and all of that. So I'd done a lot of tasting on single malts. And as I was getting into college, my pops handed me a, a wine spectator one day and that he picked up and thought I should read. And I remember reading about 63 Dow's port in it. And I said, you know, I, that sounds kind of good. I could kind of sounds like what I like in scotch. I could try that. I'd like to taste that one day. And so I kind of launched it off. So I was always kind of into wine and got in through a lot of, a lot of, um, there was a lot of influence at Cornell as well. Um, and then just taking a lot of the wine classes. 
going through with the professors there and having amazing exposure through those. I mean, it was, those classes were kind of nuts. How so? The access to wine that we got to see. I mean, in the, in the big wines class for 400 students, I TA'd that for a long time. And I remember opening it was 78 Mondavi Reserve for 400 students. I think we must have had something like 47 Margot for 400 students. That's where it all goes, huh? Yeah. And it was just it, like opening three cases of that for 22-year-old or 21-year-old college students. But then even in... Um, even tasting the, through. Yeah. Tasting through 36 bottles. Exactly. And like, I, I, th- I think I got a firm handle on this That was one always the, the highlight job. That was always like the, the top-ranking TAs got to do those. And then some of the other classes, uh, they're just... I've got the opportunity to taste wines I've never tasted since. And you know, I was being able to sit down and actually taste DRC from the 50s and 60s and 70s in class was just amazing. You didn't mind doing the homework for that class? No, I was okay with that. Yeah, I was pretty comfy with that. So you get back from Germany, and what happens? You know, we moved actually from Germany, from Harvest, we moved down to Italy. And we were still working at the winery there, but we went back to open a restaurant. So we opened a little restaurant um, in Negrar, just outside of Verona, and ran that for a while with a partner. And unfortunately, it dissolved due to some partner issues that we had. But um, we came back to the States in 2006, and we we're kind of high on starting winery here, starting to apply some of what we had learned and some of what we were interested in and some of what we thought had the ability to succeed here. And so we came back with that vision, but um, it wasn't really our full-time thing. So we just kind of started tinkering with winemaking upstate and started out doing it at my parents' house and then moved to a garage, a little auto body garage. And we've just recently completed a move to a big auto body garage. So we came back wanting to do that, but we're both still, our target's really still in the hospitality industry. And so we were uh, working around the States. We've gone out to Montana for a minute, then we went down to Texas, ran a small little resort and, and restaurant down in Texas for about four years, trying our, our best to really kind of focus and elevate that experience and create something really special. And I think we were pretty happy with the way that that ended up turning out. It was absolutely gorgeous little spot, 313 acres with four rooms and nine tables, just over the top and extravagant, but really cool. And then we've been in, uh, in Pennsylvania for the last four years, working another Relay and Chateau property, a bit bigger than that. So we had uh, 16 rooms and four restaurants, well, two when we started. We had four when we left and just kind of gaining more and more management experience and more experience running companies and those kind of things. So now we uh, have, in 2013, we decided we were ready to head back up to the Finger Lakes and start opening restaurants there and focus more on the winery and really kind of launch that and, and get that going. You know, we had just started basically to release our first wines and we, after years of tinkering and trying different things, we finally started to get to where we really wanted to be. And so. Did you see parallels between what you'd seen in Germany and the Finger Lakes region? In a lot of ways, yes. And in a lot of ways, no. I think that there's, uh, there's some obvious climactic similarities just in terms of our extremities and the importance of moderating factor and the importance of sort of being on that, on that cusp of nature and where it's possible to actually grow grapes. There's a lot of similarities, but there's also a lot of dissimilarities just in terms of both the history, but also the kind of culture around wine. And in some ways there's more similarities in both the history and the culture around wine. You know, there was a time period at, not very long ago that Germany wasn't popular and Riesling wasn't cool or hip. And so you really kind of saw a lot of, you know, the Mosul wasn't filled with rock star producers. There have always been some, but a lot of people weren't, weren't really striving. It wasn't this new generation that we're seeing right now popping up. And so we see that, I think there was a bit of that kind of it's good enough mentality in a lot of, of Germany as well that I think had existed to some level in the Finger Lakes in the past also. The, yeah, we make good Riesling and everything else is, yeah, we can't really make red wines here. So 
these ones are pretty good for being from here, as opposed to the idea of, you know, we can make great red wine. Does that mean that there was a ready market for what was being made in a region at a given time or in the Finger Lakes? In the Finger Lakes, there's always been a market in the Finger Lakes because we're a huge tourism destination. We have big draws from a number of different angles and Cornell obviously draws a lot all on its own. Lots of parents and lots of students. There's a number of colleges in the area that drive that a lot. So Hobart is up in Geneva. Ithaca and Cornell are both in Ithaca. And so there's a lot of tourism from that, but there's also a ton from Formula One and NASCAR. Watkins Glen has a massive racetrack and we see a huge influx of tourism in the summer because of that. And at all levels, there's the NASCAR weekends and then the Formula One weekends. But when those aren't going on, and those are big numbers, those are when we get a million people over three weekends, basically. But when those aren't going on, it's the Porsche Club and the Ferrari Club are all coming up and renting out the track. And then they're driving around and doing wine tours. And so there's always been a market for our wine. But that market hasn't always been the most discerning. And in a lot of ways, I think that that's really held back our winemaking. It's easy not to try harder when you're selling everything. And you're selling it for not inexpensively. So... I guess the question has always been, why work harder to make great vinifera that I can charge $2 or more for than just doing this, which is easy, and selling natives or, or, or hybrids? Because there's a fair amount of hybrids in the Finger Lakes. There's a ton. <clears throat> I think even if you just look at the numbers, New York is the second largest grape producing state and the third largest fine wine producing state. And it's just all the hybrids and native that don't make it into that fine wine category. So Washington doesn't have that culture that we do. You know, for a very long time, we were told we couldn't grow vinifera up here. So I think that there's probably a little bit of exaggeration in the whole Dr. Frank story and how that all came about. But the reality was, is between Fournier and Frank, they were the first to really have vinifera. Everything prior to that, and we had a big industry prior to that, was all native and, and hybrid. So we've had a booming, pretty successful history in upstate New York with grapes and with wine, but it wasn't until the last 50 years that any of it was, was vinifera. So Finger Lakes has a higher proportion, but if you go out to like Erie County, um, that's still dismal. I mean, there's still a ton of wine production. Erie, I think, is the second largest grape producing county in the country after something, Madeira or one of the Central Valley ones. But it's all going for Welsh's and for MD 2020. So Moga David's out there, I think. They make a ton of that stuff. So we haven't really had that culture for a very long time. And as we're starting to see more of a push towards it, right now we're, we're kind of in what I sort of see as another transitionary period in the Finger Lakes with lots and lots of people coming with really high ambition and with the idea that not just our Riesling can be world-class, that we can do other things, that we can do Pinot and we can do Cabernet Franc, we can do Syrah. Maybe that's just me that thinks we can do Syrah. Um, but yours is pretty good. Thanks. But at a level that's, that, that really is competitive in the market. Is there a grower culture there that thinks of grapes as another vegetable or fruit crop as opposed Super. to like a wine crop? Super. Um, boy, I'm going to get in trouble for this one probably. Um, yeah, no, but I think that that's been something that's really held back the the winemaking scene in general. And it's been something that Cornell's been really, I think, a real problem for the industry and in, is the push of grapes as agriculture. And I, I know, I love it. It sounds great. It's super romantic. Like, you know, Ravenau is just a, a farmer. Yeah, he's just a farmer of, you know, 30 generations of grape growers working the best land with the best grape in the world. There's a little difference between that and being a farmer who's got 10 acres of corn and 20 acres of soybeans and 10 acres of beets and then cabbage and then 10 acres of grapes. And a big part of our culture has been in farming. And so farmers look for what grows easy. And that's one of the biggest problems that we have is nobody wants to grow Pinot because it's a challenge. 
But when you look at where Pinot grows the best in the world, it's always a challenge. And that's what makes it great. So we're still in kind of a mindset of, okay, we want really productive land. We want high nutrient. This is something that you see in the Finger Lakes a lot is as you drive by, it's like cornfield, vineyard, cornfield, vineyard, soybeans, corn. And corn is a huge nutrient crop. So it takes a ton. So the soils that corn is planted in is generally great farmland. And vines also take all those nutrients if you let them. And so we end up with a ton of vigor and there's all kinds of things that that kind of snowballs into. But yeah, grapes have really been seen as an agricultural crop. And I think it's one of those changes. It's one of the things that um, I think is really cool about the, uh, the new Paul Hobbs project. What Paul and Johannes are doing is... Johannes Zellbach. Zellbach, yeah. Is, it's risky. And I think that's exciting. It's, you know, they've taken a site that I think there's a lot of skepticism that it's on that borderline of being too cold. Because it's a forest now, right? It's a right. forest and it's at the south end of the lake and... Seneca Lake. Yep. It's cold down there. I live actually just down the, the road from it and it's, it used to be a vineyard, but it hasn't been for a very long time. And so there's some concern that maybe it won't work. But if it does, it's going to be fantastic. You know, and if they, if they really did find a spot that they can grow and cultivate in, they've likely found probably one of the best vineyard sites in the Finger Lakes that's been developed so far. So it's exciting to see that happening and to see some of those risks being taken. Because it could be a game changer for the area. It, it could certainly be. And it's going to be a game changer one way or the other. I hope it's a good one. <laughs> So what are the growing conditions of the place in general? I mean, how should I understand the Finger Lakes as a region? Is it very varied in terms of soil? Is it somewhat uniform? Are there different parts of it that I should know about? Yes. There's a ton of stuff. Um, hugely variable. So let's talk about climate. First of all, it's inland. So it's continental and it's we have extremes. And we always get thought of as cold climate. And I would argue that our that that's not entirely true. Our winter is freezing cold climate, and our summer is cool climate. We don't have a problem really with ripeness. I've rarely seen too many wines that aren't... If they're underripe, it's not because they didn't have the growing season to ripen. It's because they didn't, weren't cropped correctly to ripen. I don't think we, when farming is done well, have a trouble achieving plenty of ripeness. And I would almost argue sometimes overripeness, personally. But the winter is our biggest issue. The winter is so freezing cold that we have tons of vine kill. So that's our biggest concern in a lot of things. I brought up Syrah earlier and I get picked on a lot for being... Is that a grower joke? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I get a lot of hell for pushing Syrah so much. And I think Syrah ripens fantastically in the Finger Lakes. It's just whether you have any fruit to ripen is a concern because it's not super cold tolerant. I like how you used the weather joke, too. That was good. There you go. Uh, so the, that's a little bit about the climate. The soils are, are also all over the board. If you think about the way that the Finger Lakes was essentially, the, the soil was formed, there was an ocean that basically ran across I-90 and ran east to west across the state. And as you went further south, it got deeper. And as you get deeper, you're, and I'm not a, soilologist or whatever those people are called. So I don't quite understand all of this, but my understanding is, is that essentially as our, as our sedimentation levels change in the ocean, we end up with different soils. And there's sort of, there's a band of limestone that basically runs from almost from Albany all the way to Michigan that, that Niagara escarpment runs on and Michigan limestone is on. That is that layer was where diatomes were. And then south of that, we end up with all these sedimentary shale soils and We've got clays and all of this stuff, but they were all deposited basically running in bands east to west. But when the glaciers came through and tore the lakes, essentially they sort of grabbed these, they, they scarred the land moving north to south. So as the glacier receded, or the glaciers, they carved these deep scars in, in the earth that eventually formed the lakes. But with that, they dragged each of these bands down and around them. So if you think about it, it's almost like a teardrop around every lake of these different soils. In its ideal form, you'd basically have 
a band of every soil around every lake at different distances from the lake. That doesn't happen. It is a mishmash beyond belief. Walking the vineyard with uh, Steve Shaw and just he's got a pretty small little vineyard. It's kind of funny talking about soils with him because it's like, oh, yeah, here's green. Here's green clay. And there's black clay over there. There's gravel over there. And it's just all of it's every vineyard is on this kind of mishmash. And I think that's part of our that's part of our sort of next generation of sorting through stuff is starting to learn what soils are where and what to plant on them. And, you know, maybe not necessarily taking a hundred percent of what other people have had success with and learning what we will have success with. Cause ours are all different. And then of course there's the distance to the lake because the lake is probably the most important aspect that we have. So Seneca is 700 feet deep. It's the deepest of our lakes and it's only about quarter mile wide. So it's extremely steep slopes in it and it never freezes. So it does a ton of stuff and Cuca will freeze occasionally. Cayuga does. Um, they're not quite as deep, but they're these massive bodies of water. And essentially what they're going to do is they moderate our climate a lot. And that keeps it warmer in the, in the winter and cooler in the summer. Um, and more specifically, right now, it keeps it cooler. So we'll see if you plant something sensitive, you really need to be close to the, to the lake in the winter. Syrah's got to be close to it. Gewurz needs to be close to it. Some of those grape varieties that have big winter kill problems, they need to be in an area that's protected by that lake water all winter. As you go into spring, though, right now what we're seeing is we're so far behind everywhere else. It's, it's even just driving down to the city. It's like you guys are three weeks further ahead in spring than we are. And because of those lakes, and that's really important to us because it delays bud break which means that when we get, I don't know, a couple of weeks, like a week ago, it hit 26 again, I think, or 24 the other night. And so when we get these later frosts, the buds are protected because they haven't come out. So that's a little bit about the climate, the soil, the way it was formed and why it's there and what's cool about it. So what were your first moves on starting Element Winery? To be honest, the winery has changed quite a bit since then. Um, uh, we actually started out with the intention of uh, making uh, apple wines. So having grown up a bit outside of the Finger Lakes, I grew up visiting when family was in town and friends. We'd go over to the Finger Lakes and do winery tours and things like that. Spent a summer over there at one point and but we'd go visit wineries, and so that was always kind of a part of my life. But the reality is, is when you're outside of the Finger Lakes, because of that sort of hyper-specificity of being on the edge of viticultural possibility, when we get out of there, we don't see really much grape growing. So I really grew up more in apple country, and so it was kind of a big part of when we came back. We'd been in Italy for a while. We'd been, spent a lot of time up in Trentino and Alto Adige. I'd seen a lot of cool stuff happening up there with their apple and pear stuff. So we came back with the intention to play around with that and started with it. Started making this tiny amount of apple wines. And we were really happy with where they started, but we were having a hard time keeping consistency from year to year. Even more so than in grapes. It was just... We probably were changing too many variables with growers and and varieties and things but we ended up with huge shifts in like acid and bitterness and all of these things were just all over the board so uh in 2009 we started uh with some riesling for the first time and made the first wine with riesling and my dad kind of did that one on his own as just sort of an experiment and it was sort of the first time that we were like okay maybe we should just do grapes maybe we should just go with this so started out doing that in 2009 and then added the, the lineup of reds in 2010. And there's also a Chardonnay. Uh, there is. Uh, really bottled. I don't know if I'm going to release it or not. Um, because I have been making Chardonnay because there's amazing potential for Chardonnay in the Finger Lakes. There's just been some stunning stuff produced. And so like Shaw, who I mentioned earlier, got some fantastic some of the stuff that weimer has produced has been nuts chardonnay and then chardonnay for sparkling is is coming along gorgeous up there so i keep playing with chardonnay i haven't quite figured out where i want it to be yet 
keep going back and forth with it. So, what is your approach to the other grape varieties? You have Riesling, Chardonnay, Cabernet Franc, Pinot Noir, and Syrah. Yeah, as a winery, our target really is our red wine production, and that's an awful way for me to sell white wines to say that. But that's really a big part of our real focus is on our red wines. It's also counter to what I think a lot of people think about the Finger Lakes, right? It is. And that's partially intentional. It's partially because I want people to to start seeing and expecting that we can make great red wines. I I think part of it is, is I want to, I want to help the place that I grew up move forward. I want to help my home expand and get better and get more famous. And I want to see everybody succeed. And I think one of the ways that we can, that I can be most influential and impactful in that is helping to expand our horizons with what we can do well. And I think by doing, by focusing on red wines, I can really kind of move that. You know, I think people already are starting to realize that we make really good Riesling in the Finger Lakes and that we have the potential to make great Riesling and continue to do it. But I don't know if that's out there yet for red. And so it's where I think I can start to have an influence. So we focus on that. It's also a lot of it is just our size and technology. We're a tiny little wine room and make 800 cases across five or six different wines. And we just don't have the technology to do whites the way that I'd really like. If I'm making a thousand liters of Riesling, I can't really have a chilling unit and all kinds of fun stuff like that. So without having some of those, you know, we have an old basket press, which is great for reds, but awful for pressing whites. It just takes forever. So it's super inefficient. So I think our big focus is really on trying to expand the horizon with red wines. And of them, Pinot Noir, Saran, Cab Franc are kind of our main focuses. Though we do keep trying to integrate other things. So I just bottled some 2013 Lemberger, which is pretty smoking good. And I've been really excited about some. I haven't gotten any, but I really want to do Merlot this year. Who have been some of the guideposts and mentors for that red wine production, whether in that region or anywhere in the world? Who are some of the people you're thinking about or getting vibe from in in your own moves to making wine at Element? Ultimately, our whole concept is to define the Finger Lakes. And I think a lot about this stuff, and it's oftentimes very, there's a lot of hypocrisy in it and a lot of things that make sense and don't make sense and a lot of counterintuitivity and all of this stuff. Um, But ultimately, my goal at the winery is to make a wine that represents the Finger Lakes. And I'm not going to lie, and I don't think many of us that are in this industry probably drink a ton of, I mean, we all drink New World wine, but I think a lot of us have tend to have a tendency to prefer a lot of Old World producers. I would be lying if I said I drank a ton of Finger Lakes wine on the regular basis. When I drink for fun, I'm drinking Chinon and I'm drinking Northern Rhone and I'm drinking Southern Rhone and Chablis and all of those things. I'm drinking Riesling from, from the Mosul. And because those are what I like, but that's not what I want to make. I want to make a wine that's representative of the Finger Lakes. If I wanted to make Chinon, I, it's 2014 or 15, whatever year it is now, I could have gone and bought a winery in Chinon. I, I could have a winery in the Finger Lakes and just buy grapes from Chinon and the Mosul and everywhere else and bring them in. There's all kinds of options, but ultimately my goal is to really make a wine that's representative of the Finger Lakes. But to get to that, I think a lot of those old world sensibilities, you know, a lot of the wines that I love are, when I talk about Chinon, it's Olga Raffaut. You know, that's a wine that I just, I sort of hold in that esteem of, I don't want to make a wine just like it, but I love the sensibility of the lack of oak focus and the underripeness that's present in that wine and not out of balance and all of that. So that's one of the things that really kind of drives our winemaking. And then seeing where that happens in the rest of the world, places like Stony Hill out in California, seeing what Greg's doing up at Gramercy um, have been really important. Trying to watch some of the Pinot Noir that um, guys like Jay Summers is making out at uh, Jay Christopher. Those are all wines that I think are really interesting because they encompass where they're from but they have the sensibility of the old world. They have some of that balance and elegance while still maintaining the fact that, I mean, Stony Hill is from Napa. There's aspects of it that are provenly and distinctively Napa. And Greg's wines are distinctively Washington and Jay's are distinctively Oregon. So I think that's a little bit of what we're trying to capture is distinctively Finger Lakes. 
Cabernet Franc, what's that been like for you to grow and to make into a wine? Awesome. I think Cabernet Franc is right now probably the easiest of the reds in the Finger Lakes. It seems to be the most natural and the most at home. A part of, a part of our concept as a winery, though, is I buy fruit. All of my fruit is negociant based. So I'm buying from as many different sites and as many different growers as I possibly can. Because a part of a part of our concept is that of of well, when I see what everybody's into these days, it seems like specificity is becoming more and more the buzzword. It's the trend. Site specific, vineyard specific, clone specific, close specific, parcel specific, whatever. And specificity is great in wine, but I'm concerned a lot of times it's it's at the cost of complexity. And in a lot of ways, specificity is also great when we think about Burgundy. I mean, when you drink Burgundy, like, at least so I've heard, I don't, I don't know if I've ever had Burgundy, but it, when you drink it, you're, that specificity is fantastic. But you have to understand the whole before you can understand the parcel. And it's great to get to drink the Grand Cruz and the Premier Cruz, but unless you know what Bourgogne Rouge tastes like, and until you know what Gevre Chambertin Village tastes like, the Premier and Grand Cruz make no sense. And so that's part of our kind of goal as a winery is to make one wine that represents the whole of the Finger Lakes. So I buy as much fruit from as many different soils, even growers. And I want growers that grow differently. I want somebody that's more conventional, somebody that's less conventional. I want somebody that's got higher cropping, somebody that's got lower cropping and different rootstocks, different everything, soils, lakes, aspects, and I want to be able to vinify those separately in the winery so that I can keep track of them and learn from it. But ultimately, I want to bring them together into one wine. I want to make one wine that eventually, hopefully, represents the whole of the Finger Lakes because it came from the whole of the Finger Lakes. I want to make Pinot from the Finger Lakes, Cab Franc from the Finger Lakes. And so with that, I've had the opportunity to see a lot of different growers growing a lot of different grapes and and. Cab Franc seems to be the most consistent. I mean, you kind of stick that in the ground and it just sort of grows. And if you don't screw with it too much and you've got a decent-ish site, it just kind of does its thing. Clusters are loose on it. The skins are pretty thick, so it tends to have a nice botrytis resistance. And when you get into the winery, as long as you haven't over-ripened it and you don't over-oak it and you don't make a, like a bad fermentation fault, it kind of makes good wine. Cabernet Franc just seems to be the most consistent, easily made quality wine in the Finger Lakes. And I think a part of our distinction as a winery is sort of our, our ability and just the ability and the blessing that I've had in my career choice of being able to taste a lot of wines. And it's, it's a distinct advantage that I have that I'm here in the city all the time. I'm out drinking with sommeliers all the time. I'm tasting Cab Franc from everywhere in the world all the time. But being able to taste those and sort of see and really focus on high quality Cab Franc and I think understanding what Cabernet Franc's maximum potential is, that it's always a bit green, that it's always got some of that bell pepper jalapeno note and it's balancing that. So I think Cap Franc has the ability to do awesome. And as people start to get more comfortable with ripeness of Cabernet Franc, and that both means ripening enough, but not too much. And then Oak regime, we're going to see killer stuff. So is sourcing from all over the region also a hedge against vintage variation? It is, I think, in a bit. It certainly, Cap Franc doesn't tend to be as sensitive, but something like Merlot or um, Gewürzt, last year, like, Nobody, there was no Gewürztraminer. There was no Merlot. But some of the some of the things got hit like site specific. So certain sides of the lake got hit really bad last year with cold. And so by having more of that, yeah, you do outweigh some vintage variation. But you also outweigh all of a lot of different variations. You know, when we sort, I, I think that this kind of sums it up. When we sort, we spend a ton of time hand sorting, but we're not looking for ripeness unless it's stupid underripe like green hard berry still it all goes in i'm not sitting there looking for i want only perfect fruit at 22 bricks blah 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 no if it's overripe fine it goes in if it's underripe fine it goes in and i think that that's something that i like from having that variety of vineyard sites is having 
a little overripe fruit, having a little underripe fruit. As long as I get out rot and sour rot and botrytis and those kind of things, I'm comfy with all those variations. But yeah, I think it, it overcomes a lot of a lot of that vintage and just a lot of, you know, this is a cool site, this is a hot site, this area always gets raisinated. I think it balances it together. And ultimately, I mean, we're tasting those wines constantly as they go through vinification and élevage. So some stuff gets cut out. You know, if over time we just find out that this particular vineyard just isn't cutting it for us, it'll come out. And generally it doesn't even go. If it's if the wine isn't good on its own, it won't make it into the final blend, which I know is kind of contradictory to what I said earlier. So uh, sort of my own form of being okay with manipulation. But there's a sense where you can do that because the grape prices are somewhat reasonable. Whereas maybe in another region you might be like, I don't know, that's a big financial hit to cut that out. They are slightly reasonable, but you might be surprised by that. I know when I was in when I was in Burgundy last year talking to growers there, we paid pretty much the same price as Premier Cru Burgundy for fruit. Really? So, you know, it's still less than Napa Valley. So, I mean, we pay a, a good premium for fruit, and especially once you tack on all the add-ons for us, like hand harvesting fees and and if, especially if you want to actually control your yields, you're, you're, you're up there in price point. And no, n- not making something in a final blend is never a good idea. It's always a bad idea. But uh, I think it's part of just investing in the future. You know, we're, we're also trying to battle against a price conception in the Finger Lakes, which is a huge challenge for us. How does that play out? I think our wine tends to be at the high end of the price point. And I've really pushed it. And I've been surprised that since I've started doing it, how much I'm seeing other people pushing it. But there's still this idea that there's a price ceiling for us. And when you walk around retail stores, that's really evident. Not a little bit down here, but upstate. Like There's just like this ceiling of $12.99 for white wine. And we're in a crappy climate. It's cold, it's nasty, it's rainy, it's wet. You can't make great wine for $12.99. Like you just cannot. You can't make the sacrifices that you have to make to make great wine for that bottle price. You know, when red wines need to be under $20 a bottle retail, like you can't make those sacrifices. You can't go, you know what? This was an awful vintage. I'm just not going to bottle it. You know what? This barrel has done something wrong. It's not going to make it into the blend. You can't make those sacrifices if you can't afford to. And so, it's been something that we've really been fighting against. I mean, we're pretty selective about what we do and our sorting usually costs us about 25% of our fruit. Our final selection on what goes into final blends probably normally runs us another 40% of our of our stuff doesn't make it in or it'll make it into a lesser wine. You know, I shouldn't say it doesn't make it in, but it won't make it into the top wines. It might go into... In a lot of cases, if I'm just not getting varietal specificity, it's something I can play around with for a red table wine, which like the 2010 that you had was, that was all Syrah. It just wasn't syrah enough for me. So I can play around with those things. If wine's just not good, it can't go in anything. But in order to be able to do that, I've got to be able to charge money for the bottles and everybody else in the Finger Lakes is in the same situation. You know, you can't expect great wine for 12 bucks a bottle in bad growing conditions. It may be possible in, in Spain or in California, but in an area that's just as, as highly variable and unpredictable as Burgundy, it's impossible. But being at the margins may give you an advantage in terms of certain flavors that you might be looking for. What do you mean? Less ripeness. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. And, and I think that that's... I think that's a big shift that we're trying, I'm trying to push right now. Is it, it, it cracks me up because when we talk about ripeness in the Finger Lakes, there's this like embarrassment that we're in a cool climate a lot of times. It's like, you know, it's, we're, we're, we're not, it's not like we're in California, you know, we're, we can't make that good a wine. And it's hilarious because we're so embarrassed by being in a cool climate and we try to overcompensate and, and overcome that at all costs. And everybody in California wants to be in a cool climate. And so it's, it always just cracks me up that like we're fighting. Well, the grass is always greener. 
And so we're always wanting to be in California. Everybody in California is trying to make wine like they're in the Finger Lakes. And the grass is always greener, but it's not always lignified. I guess that's the, the thing. <laughs> you right? can keep your lignification. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you know, it, and I think even when we, I talk about Burgundy a lot and it's, it always cracks me up because we have exactly what makes Burgundy sexy and exciting for the rest of the world. And we're just like, oh, but we can't ripen it consistently 10 out of 10 years. And it's like, well, yeah, but that's, that's part of the allure. Part of what makes it great and exciting. Cabernet Franc, a few people have made that over the years. You're having pretty good success sourcing grapes on that. Yeah. What about Syrah? That sounds a little bit more like an outlier for the region. So of the other two that I focus on a lot, Pinot and Syrah, each have their own challenges. Um, Syrah for me, I think it was actually, it was speaking of California's cool climate revolution. It was years ago, um, I remember doing a, I think Star Chefs had one of their conference things and they had a Syrah blind tasting. And I remember one of the wines, just the entire room was like, you know, this is, this is high quality Northern Rhone. This is Crows. This probably tastes like Gryo. And it was Wind Gap. It was one of their Syrahs. And that wine was stunning. And it was when I tasted that wine that I was like, shit, I wonder if we can make Syrah in the Finger Lakes. Because listening to sort of their numbers and where it came from and the climate that they're growing that at, it's kind of similar. So we started, we, we made our first Syrah in 2010 and I couldn't be happier with the path of Syrah. There isn't much planted. There's only four or five vineyards planted in total and I'm getting two of them. But it's, it can do really, really well. It's cold sensitive though. So as I mentioned earlier, the, the winters are real hard hard for it but even in the last two winters i haven't had i think last year was the worst i've had and basically i had about 50 percent of my normal crop 40 mm. percent of my normal crop uh so we did lose quite a bit but it still wasn't as bad as gewurztraminer which everybody supports as being just fine in the finger lakes and even merlot is more sensitive but when it gets to ripening syrah does awesome i mean people oftentimes i think still think of Syrah as a hot climate grape and it does great in hot climates. I mean, there's some gorgeous stuff from the hot climate Australia and some gorgeous hot climate California things. But when we think about the Northern Rhone and that sort of peppery, meaty, vile, olivey style of Syrah, that's really pretty cool climate influenced and especially all the cool stuff that's happening out in California with the wind gap and Arno Roberts and all those guys those are really kind of capturing that cool climate essence. And I think we have the ability to do the exact same thing. Pretty spicy, floral, peppery, meaty, stemmy, green, and really well-balanced wines. Pinot's a little different. Pinot's seems to be just fine with the cold tolerance, but is a pain in the vineyard. As everybody knows, it's a pain in the vineyard everywhere, which is why nobody used to plant it until it became cool. Um, that's a cool climate joke. That is another cool climate joke right there. So Pinot's really crushing it. We're at a point where it may actually be working. And there's been some really exciting things and some really exciting projects popping up around Pinot. And I'm starting to see people really make good stuff. But Pinot's so sensitive and more so than any other grape, it's thin-skinned, it's tight cluster, and that tight cluster is a really big issue for us with just our botrytis and sour rot potential. We've got all kinds of critters. I mean, we're pretty pretty wild up there, and so there's a lot of challenges in viticulture that Pinot is really sensitive to. With that, I think we're at a point where I'm hoping to see sort of the next generation of Pinot as somebody, you know, sort of our Josh Jensen comes in or something like that. Someone who's going to come in and really just focus specifically on Pinot. Pinot doesn't do necessarily great in a program that's big. So when a farmer has five acres of Concord, then four acres of Cab Franc, then two acres of Pinot and two acres of Riesling and Viognier and all of these things, Pinot tends to suffer. It doesn't do well on other things, spray programs. You know, you basically have to watch Pinot every single day. And so waiting for somebody to come in that's really obsessed with it, who comes in and just focuses on finding the perfect spots for Pinot, 
comes in and focuses on just growing Pinot and then ultimately just making Pinot. It's, it's such a pain. I hate that grape. And it's just, it's so sensitive. Everything's constantly changing about it from the, the vineyard to the winery. I mean, even just tasting it in a lot of ways, it's a lot like Nebbiolo in that where you'll go, you'll taste a bottle today and it's absolutely gorgeous. And you'll taste that same bottle tomorrow and it's absolutely awful. And Pinot does it constantly to me and just tasting barrels. And I just stopped. I just don't ever want to taste Pinot from barrel again. I'll just wait till I think it's going to be about ready and just blend it and go. Cause it's frustrating beyond belief to taste five barrels and be like, Oh, these two are awful. And these three are great. And then the next week it's like, these three are awful. And these two are great. Well, what, what, what's happening here? So Pinot is a real challenge. Find long mallow for Pinot in the Finger Lakes. I find long mallow for everything in the Finger Lakes. I mean, I'm still, I hope my 2014s have finished. I think my 2013s have finished finally. It depends on the year. This year was really hard with mallow and we we don't heat. And so everything's basically just sitting, waiting right now, which is a challenge for us. Our winemaking super simple. And so there's no sulfur usage during basically much sulfur usage anyway, but I tend to try not, not to use any sulfur until post mallow. So this kind of long, cold winter is an extra challenge because it's delaying the ability to sulfur for me. And when wines are cold, they're more oxygen sensitive. So they're more susceptible to oxidation. When you move them around the winery, they, when you rack it in cold weather, they take on more oxygen. Exactly. So cold wine, I don't know, the oxygen, something, something capacity, uptake capacity is, is higher actually at lower temperatures. So I'm always just scared this time of year because I've got cold wine that's got no sulfur in it and I'm just hoping nothing goes wrong. So just trying to get those, those mallows to finish so that I can get them sulfur down. But in a winter like this, I mean, the winery has been 35 degrees, pretty much most of it. We've got a slightly warmer area that we keep our bottles in, but it's been a, a cold one. Whereas two winters ago, I mean, it, it was like 45 degrees all winter long. So Mallow was done by December. What about press wine? I imagine in an area where you don't get huge wines as a result of the climate, it might be tempting to use some press wine to give some structure to things. Do you do that or no? Yeah, I, I, I always put press wine right where it belongs, in with the rest of the wine. Um, yeah, no, I love press wine. I, I mean, it's, it's a little more aggressive. But I don't think that's a bad thing. And if you take time to allow wines to mature and develop slowly, I think press wine is really important for us. And again, I, unless it's really adding something bad, it's adding complexity. It's different. It's something, it's a different texture, a different feel. So I love it. Not that we have the ability to press real hard. I mean, this little bladder press doesn't give us crazy amounts of pressure. Otherwise, we'll pop it and then we'll be screwed. But yeah, we always, everything goes together. First free run, press, it all will end up. And also because most of our, our lots are pretty small. A lot of our stuff is, you know, a ton here, a ton there. So I'm trying to fill 500 liter barrels because mostly we use 500 and 600s. And so any little bit helps to get me to that full 500 or 600. So it all goes in. If I were sourcing Pinot Noir, and if I were sourcing Syrah, mm-hmm. I might blend some Syrah into the Pinot to give a little more color. Is that something you ever do? It's not, and I don't know why. I think the new thing that I've started to figure out is that I'm less concerned about making the best wine right now, and I'm more concerned about making the most representative wine at the moment. And I think that that's a big differentiation, you know, I try not to spend, I really try not to spend too much geeky time with like blending trials. I try not to go too much of like, okay, you know, is it, should we do 5% of this or 7% of this? Should we add 200 liters from this barrel or 250? I really try just to go through and go, yep, that one's good. That one's going in the blend. That one's good. That one's good. That one's good. That one's good. And a part of that is, yeah. If you sit down and run through all these wines, you can find a wine that has the perfect balance of texture. 
I ultimately want to make a wine that's just representative of where we are. And there's a big difference for that. I could fix a lot of things. I prefer not to. And I've been surprised. Color has always been a challenge for us. We, um, we are not anthocyanin rich in the Finger Lakes. So color extraction across all of our grapes is pretty hard. And it's funny because I was sommelier for so many years. And just as a wine lover, it was always really easy to be like, how could someone do that? How could they put Syrah on their Pinot? What are they thinking? Why are they doing this? And then as a winemaker, you're like, I put, <laughs> put a little of that one right in that. Nobody, uh, um, so it becomes really tempting to want to fix stuff, but colors, you know, colors, just color who it doesn't, I don't taste it. I don't, I'm not one that gets pleasure from looking at my glass of wine nearly as much as I do from smelling it and drinking it. So I try to really stay away from it, but it's hard. I mean, that pressure as a winemaker is like to want to do, I want more color and I do, and I don't know why I want it. So I always keep trying to fight that and keep it back. And it's been, it's been really good talking to Psalms in the city, which, you know, aren't always necessarily the best litmus test for how my wine's actually going to do. But these are the people that actually sell my wine. You know, our wine is a pretty specific target and who gets our wine and where it goes is pretty tight. So it's, it's not necessarily just out there. And I think part of the packaging with the Hawk bottle and things was actually to do that in, intentionally to sort of discourage the random Jerseyite from grabbing it off the shelf and expecting it to taste like California cab or Pinot or something. And I've been really surprised actually at a lot of the feedback from a lot of the industry that I talked to about not caring about the color of it. Some still do, but a lot of the feedback I got was just don't worry about it. So, so I try not to. So you're one of the fairly few winemakers that I know that also makes beer. Mm-hmm. And what's that experience been like for you? Great. I try not to do them in the same place because I like funky, wild, sour beers and you do not want them in your winery. Like the yeast. You yeah. don't want the yeast. Yeah. Right. And of course that would be illegal. So I'd never do that. I, I like, I mean, I've been into beer and wine kind of simultaneously through most of my life, certainly as an adult and kind of always swung back and forth between them and been getting more in the last, you know, I was big into beer back in 10 years ago. And then I started getting back into it a couple of years ago. And it's been wild to see sort of the change in the beer geekery and the beer douchery that's going on right now. But beer making is kind of similar to winemaking, but fundamentally very different in, in that when you want to make beer, you can just keep doing it over and over and over and over. And I can brew, I mean, you can brew a one gallon batch every day of an IPA until you find a great recipe. You can't do that with wine. I mean, you could probably, but most of us try to not do that. So, you know, with wine, it's like, it's kind of frightening to know that, I don't know, I'm 35 now. I'm going to get, you know, if things go well for me, I might get 40 more tries at making wine, something like that. Whereas, you know, I might make 40 batches of beer in the next two months. So it's a little scary to know that every, every decision you make and every time you try something new with wine, especially on our level, which is, you know, I might only make two tanks of something. If I try and experiment on one of them, that's one fortieth of the times I'll get to try that the rest of my life with that wine. So it's, it's a little bit more, it's a little bit more relaxed in that, but there's also just more manipulation for me in beer. It's easier to go, oh, you know, I want a little bit more, I want more head retention on this. So I'm going to use a little bit more of this. I want more, I want this a little lighter in color. So I'll use a little bit less of this than with winemaking. I mean, our winemaking is super hands off, but even if, even in a more aggressive winemaking program, I feel like there's, and I could, this could be naive, me being naive. I feel like there's less opportunity for tweaking in wine than there is in beer. You feel less comfortable doing it. I certainly feel less comfortable doing it. And for me, that's something as a still as a chef and cooking for the majority of my daytime that I really, it's kind of funny. People ask me about it a lot and it's always how I'm comfortable doing so little to our wine. Cause our wine is, 
I don't know, I'll taste it once a month or something, but after it's after it hits barrel, I don't really think about that wine for two years. Um, generally or a year, year or two. And even before it hits barrel, it's super, super casual. It's really simple winemaking. There's no adjustments, no acid, no tannin, no chapitalization for heaven's sakes, and no enzyme use, none of that stuff. And it's like, well, how can you how can you be so comfortable not doing anything? And it's like, well, because I get all my creativity out with, with food. You know, I'm hyper specific in the kitchen and it's like, okay, I want my burger texture exactly like this. So the temperature needs to be this before the second grind and it needs to be ground at this level, this time period, and then touched with this much pressure. And I get all of that sort of control out in things like cooking. So I'm a little bit more comfortable with winemaking, just going, yeah. Ever the tannin will resolve. We'll just wait. You're probably a little more tired too because you've been doing a lot of like pick up on table four, yeah, know, like all day. And you're like, I don't know, man. That wine just needs to take care of itself. That that wine that wine can it, we'll deal with it tomorrow. Um, yeah, there's a lot of that with bottling. It's like I'm still trying to get bottled the stuff bottled I was supposed to bottle last summer. But that's part of that's another good thing about. I mean nice and from a marketing perspective sure i always tell people i'm just waiting till the wine is ready to release and a lot of it's just like yeah i've gotten around to bottling that yet i haven't had time um but yeah that's one of the nice things about reds as well is just they're a little bit more they're a little less time sensitive so i have the ability to just kind of wait and see what happens and take our time and again a lot of it's that a lot of that's just waiting for the wine to do its thing and come into balance making wine making beer running a restaurant, occasionally writing an article or two about wine. Are you ever, you know, accused of not doing enough? Is there people who think like, you know. Only by my wife. Christopher's um, really not got enough stuff going on. Such yeah, a waste of talent, you know. I tend to stay pretty busy. I, I probably should focus a little more one of these days on making one of those actually work well for me. But, yeah, we just, we keep running around. And thankfully, uh, my wife keeps me slightly more organized and you know she she does all the back of the house stuff with the restaurant and you know i've got a really great support team my dad does most of the back of the house work with the winery and make sure things get shipped out and does all the tinkering at the winery and stuff like that so i've just got a really good team of of people helping to support to make sure it all happens got a good team and good friends that help when we need so Christopher Bates of FLX Wienery and also Element Winery. He's got a good team and he's trying to represent the Finger Lakes. Thank you very much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Christopher Bates of FLX Wienery and Element Winery. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.